Welcome back to the Reading and Writing Podcast. My guest today is Emily Owen, author of the debut novel, The Mechanical Maestro, the first volume of the Abernathy series. Emily, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Well, if someone hasn't heard about your novel, The Mechanical Maestro, yet, how would you describe the novel? Um, I suppose it's like a historical fiction novel, but it's got um, like a hint of like the steampunk genre about it. So it's based around um, a family of three siblings who are all geniuses. Um, the two brothers invent, um, I suppose, what we call AI, um, so like clockwork androids, and the sister. Uh, her expertise is kind of like transformative plant biology. And the series kind of focuses um, on sort of their adventures and sort of the, um, focuses on the androids they create. And in the first one, it's sort of seeing them going from uh, just sort of getting by in this uh, Nakadol clock making shop and then sort of getting a bit of a lucky break, really. And then what happens after that and what these. Um, inventions that are quite anachronistic in that, that context, how they affect Victorian society. And so do you remember the original idea or impetus that led you to writing The Mechanical Maestro? Uh, well, I suppose I've had an interest in kind of like the steampunk um, kind of subculture for quite a few years. And I've always thought kind of like the things like H.G. Wells and Jules Verne. But I've always had an interest in kind of like well, I suppose we'd say robots rather than sort of automata. Um, so I guess it was a combination of those two things. And I remember it was back in um, 2014, I was just about to start studying English at the University of Leeds. So I had, because um, I've always wanted to be an author, that's always sort of been the dream job. So um, I just kind of, whilst listening to music, actually, because one of the book's quite sort of immersed in music as well, that's another key theme, that um, I kind of came up with these characters. And sort of built the story around them. And I just thought, well, I've got this time now when I don't have any exams anymore or anything. So I'm going to actually try and sit down and finish a novel from start to finish. And that's what I did. And then I thought, well, if I've enjoyed writing this, maybe somebody will enjoy reading it. So I gave it to my, one of my colleagues and who sort of likes the same sort of genre that kind of sort of not too serious, sort of. Um, kind of fantasy things like Neil Gaiman and Terry Pratchett and those sorts of authors and she gave it some quite positive feedback so it kind of went from there really and whilst I was um, studying at uni I did my undergraduate uh, dissertation about representations of androids in 18th and 19th century literature so that kind of helped flesh out the story and the ideas within it as well. <laughs> So you said that you sat down and wrote a novel from start to finish. Had you had you written or tried to write novels before then? I tried to, but I think a lot of people will find this, that when you're first starting out, you tend to sort of run out of steam halfway through. So um, I tried to do, uh, I tried to write novels in my teens, but um, I'd probably get a couple of chapters in and it would kind of fizzle out. Um, but it was around when I was 17 that I really started to learn more about what steampunk was and read more Victorian literature and discovered, well, those kind of, uh, like a whole genre of music associated with that. And I think it's that that kind of was the driving force behind it. And I thought, well, this idea is kind of different to what I've done before. Because um, before that I'd been writing things that were kind of more like, um, kind of like more sort of modern kind of real life about kind of like teen dramas, that kind of thing. 
So I suppose it was just something a bit different and it was just really fun to write. Sure. Well, you had mentioned that you came up with these characters while you were listening to music. Um, Did you write while listening to music as well? Yeah, um, I actually have a playlist for all four books in this series. Um, So sometimes it can be that an idea like a particular scene or character actually is inspired directly by a song. Or I'll just be trying to write something and then I'll just sort of, as I'm on YouTube or something, I'll hear a particular song or piece of music and think, oh, this kind of really fits the mood for this. And that kind of sort of inspires you to write when maybe on a day when you're not particularly feeling sort of in the right zone for it. And what kind of music do you listen to or or what kind of music inspires you? Um, I suppose it's a bit of an eclectic mix um, because I come from quite sort of a musical household. Like both my dad and my brother um, play music and we've got dozens of guitars and drum kit, piano, all sorts of things in this house. And I am learning to play the violin as well. So I sort of grew up listening to the sort of music my dad likes, like sort of classic rock. Um, Lots of Beatles, ELO, Pink Floyd, Jeff Rotol, Beach Boys, that sort of thing. Um, I quite like classical music as well. And there's also um, artists that could be considered uh, in the steampunk genre, things like Abney Park and Steam Powered Giraffe and the Clockwork Quartet and Alice's Night Circus. So it's a bit of a mix. Um, it just kind of depends like whether it's quite a dramatic part of the story or something that's a bit more funny or if it's something that's kind of more focused on like the um, inventions aspect of it. So what attracts you to the steampunk genre and setting? I'm not too sure, really. I mean, it's something I've always liked, even before I really knew what it was. Um, so I can remember seeing um, the Disney film Atlantis when I was young, because that's got a similar kind of look to it. And I remember watching the film Howl's Moving Castle and things like that, and just thinking, oh, wow, this is really cool. And I remember going to see um, the War of the World stage show in my teens, um, Having read the book first and thinking it was absolutely amazing. And it was my friend who sort of got me more into it. And yeah, it's just something that I've always liked, really. I think it's just that, I think it's just the, like, the look and like, the fashions and like the metallic element, like all the clockwork and everything like that. So when you sat down to write The Mechanical Maestro, did you plot the novel extensively before you began writing, or did you just jump into the story to see where it goes? I think I suppose I just jumped in, really. Um, there's like Sometimes when I write, it starts as like um, a number of dis- loosely connected scenes, and usually what I do is like I'll know where I finish, and I'll know where my starting point is, and it's like, right, how do we get from A to B? Nowadays, I'm a bit more, having since finished the novel, I'm a bit more disciplined about the structure and I've got better at plotting. But I think that was kind of what was fun about this one, being at the first novel. Like, um, it was just kind of a journey of exploration. It was just a chance to sort of do what I want, really, because I wasn't really thinking at the time about getting it published or anything. The goal was just to finish it. So it was just getting a bunch of different ideas together and seeing where it went and just sort of building the story around sort of my trio of siblings. Sure. Well, well, now that you have your first novel published, what writing advice would you offer for those who are working on their own stories or novels? Um, I think a piece of advice that I heard once that's stuck with me since is to write with your heart and edit with your head. So not to worry too much about if an idea is going to work or not. 
if it's interesting to you and you're enjoying writing it, then the chances are somebody's going to enjoy reading it. So sort of just have a bit of a play and see what works and what doesn't. Um, I think my creative writing tutor once um, said that your first draft is your discovery draft, where you're just testing out ideas and it's only once you've sort of let it settle for a bit and come back to it that you think, right, this needs pulling out, this needs more explanation, this needs tidying up. And I think I'm a bit more disciplined now, but I don't worry too much about um, what people think of the story at first. Well, what novels or nonfiction books have you read recently that you enjoyed and that you would recommend? Um, at the minute, um, well, I think last year I undertook um, a reading project um, during lockdown. I didn't have too many books about, and I just found this like a pretty book sort of lying around. Um, I think it was The Murder of Roger Ackroyd, and absolutely loved it. And then I said, right, since it's like the 100th anniversary of the first Pyro book, I'm going to read all 40-odd Pyro books in the space of a year. And I just managed it just in December. But I did learn a lot from reading Christy about how to plot twists and turns because she is like the queen of crime writing and that sort of thing. Uh, I think recently in the last book I read... Um, I think it's called The Shape of Darkness. I can't remember. I think the author's name something like Lucy Thurston. And that's quite, that's kind of historical fiction. But it's more sort of gothic and dark and supernatural um, than the sort of things I write. But it was quite a gripping story. And, and what do you think you learned from that year of reading Agatha Christie? Um, I think what she does well, I think, is um, how she balances kind of light and dark elements in the story in the sense of she'll have these grisly horrible murders but then there's all these little moments of humor and sort of warmth between some of the characters and how she can just sort of so have a, have a dig almost at the some of the very englishness of some of the characters and the places where Pyle ends up and just the way she um just springs things on you at the end but then when you look back and you can see how everything joins up together <laughs> to come to that solution so it's something I'm trying to, well, not emulate, but to bear in mind. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Wherever I'm trying to, um, trying to spring a surprise on the reader. 
So do you think that you will uh, try to take some of those lessons into your to your uh, writing as you go forward? I think so, yeah, because um, I'm on the uh, third draft of the next book in the series at the minute. And I've been trying to think of some of the lessons I've learned from that reading project. Well, where can people find you online if they want to learn more about you and your novel, The Mechanical Maestro? Um, I do have an author's website. Um, it's www.e-owen.uk. And the book also has a Facebook page. Um, I'm also on Twitter and Instagram. Great. Well, again, we've been speaking with Emily Owen, author of the debut novel, The Mechanical Maestro, the first volume of the Abernathy series. The book is on sale now, so go buy a copy. And Emily, thanks for doing this interview. No problem. Great. Now stay tuned as Emily Owen reads from her novel, The Mechanical Maestro. For almost three weeks, Douglas kept the automaton hidden away in his bedroom and refused to let George see it. Instead, he had to gauge from Douglas's smoking at him every time he passed it, that he was on the right track. More often than not, however, George would lose patience and demand to know exactly what his brother was up to. You'll see soon enough, was all he ever got in reply. But how soon? That rich fool will be here in less than a fortnight. And when he does, replied Douglas coolly, he will have to concede defeat to us. This was payback on Douglas's part, of course, for George's arrogance, and for having been kept in the dark for so many months. He took a somewhat wicked delight in watching his brother wringing his hands and pacing the length of the house. Perhaps it would teach him mental humility, to not put too much faith in his own genius, and accept the help and advice of others when he needed it. Then again, he knew George too well to hope for that. At least George had shaved and rediscovered soap and water. Not to mention he was keeping the business ticking along while Douglas worked on the automaton. On the night before Waldoyson was due to arrive, Douglas told George to fetch a candle and follow him upstairs. The candle's feeble flame only devoured a small patch of darkness inside Douglas's room, but George could make out great steps of books, some towering fleeing. He also caught a glimpse of their other small pianoforte, which Douglas must have taken back out of the pawn shop. George felt his shoes stump against something and picked it up. Looking over the title of the battle book in his hand, a book of nonsense by Edward Lear, he threw it back into the darkness, which readily swallowed it whole. There. Douglas raised the candle so the light shone on the figure, seated in the chair at the farm, facing towards the window of its back for them. The candle's flame was flickering precariously, so the figure flitted in and out of sight. But George could make out chips with brown hair, probably awake with the ends curled into tight rolls. It was only when George took possession of the candle and got closer that he realised the wig was made of wood. Walking around the seated gentleman, George saw that it was a dully, polished maple skin. It was dressed in an old fashioned style, wearing a blue bulbic coat, green wineskins, and grey breeches. Its feet wore wooden flops. Only the blood of yellow eyes testified that it was, in fact, his android. I like your choice for the casing. Make all out the violin, said George eventually. I think best I may have used the little artistic license, but I doubt simply dressing it up like this will serve much purpose. The man might be a foppish fool, but it's unlikely this will convince him of anything. I have it on the made cosmetic changes. Watch. 
Douglas took the key from his pocket and unbuttoned the square pocket concealer on the front of the attendant shirt that concealed the panel. After he had wound it, a ticking came from inside, and the automaton stood upright. It started the little beholding George standing there. Douglas presented it with the violin once more. The automaton took its time composing itself. Finally, a tender, plaintive note was drawn from the violin, quickly followed by another and then another, the mood of the melody gradually lifting. It was as if each note were a single bubble that rose and burst in the air in a shower of golden sparks. The violin was possessed with an ethereal voice that spoke to the very soul and seemed to come from somewhere beyond the serial world, in a language that was beyond words and was not quite music. Suddenly the soul moved much more rapid in pace, the bow feathered across the strings with the utmost delicacy, and the automaton's fingers flickered across the strings in a blur, hardly touching them. No human could ever have played with such speed or vivacity. It was unlike anything Douglas and George had ever heard before. The effect it produced on them was indescribable. George had the most peculiar sensation, as if something had ripped hold of his heart which fluttered away erratically, while the rest of his body seemed to have dissolved away, leaving it floating adrift. As the song was nearing a climax, it came crushing down again, and melted into a slow adagio. The automaton let the listener fade away, lowered the violin, and bowed. It was only as it rose that it noticed the bow was a shredded mess of horsehair. Well, George, Douglas's voice quavered with slightened emotion. I'd say it works, wouldn't you? George failed to reply, continuing to stare wide-eyed at the automaton. Even when Douglas snapped his fingers before his eyes and poked him in the arm, he made no response. He remained in this state for a minute or two, and then all of a sudden his hand shot out and grabbed Douglas by the front of his shirt. What did you do? What was it I missed? Nothing. All I did was simply providing with inspiration. Inspiration, exclaimed George in disbelief as he released his hold. Yes, you tried working about it. Douglas smoothed down his shirt. You said it yourself that creativity is simply about making connections between things, but this automaton of yours had no reservoir of knowledge that it could make connections from. What I did was open up the world to him. I showed him books and pictures not only about music, but also about history, nature and literature. I even managed to smuggle into a music hall to see a performance there. You mean to say that while I was at my wit's end, you were reading to it and taking it to concerts? Correct. Putting matter aside the performance and how you manage that, you mean to tell me what you've told me to all of this in the space of three weeks? Yes. Well, it took him around a week to learn his letters. You taught it to read as well? Yes, he's a remarkably quick blower. I noticed you repeatedly referred to me as he. Yes, I do. Your point B? Douglas spoke in an enthusiastic manner calculated to irk his brother. My point being that it is senseless to ascribe a sex to inanimate food. It cares nothing for your choice of reference. Well, you may disappear with my choice of pronoun amongst other things, but you can't deny them to what I managed to achieve what you were able to do. He has been tuning out all sorts of wonderful and ingenious music this last week. But what you heard then is merely a prelude. There are scores of music here written in the android's own hand, and that's not all. Douglas sit down somewhere near the automaton's chair and whistled around in the dark. He retrieved a piece of paper. What does that look like to you, he asked, as he handed it to his brother. A child's crudely drawn ship, answered George, as he inspected the drawing. The lines were regular, portions far from accurate, but the basic impression of the drawer's objective had been achieved, even if they had not mastered adequate control of their pencil. The automaton drew it, 
in the picture he saw in one of the books I showed him. Why did you make it do that? Did you mess around with its input system? No, I didn't touch anything inside of it. I came upstairs one afternoon to find him sketchy. At the time, I thought he was writing down the score, but then he got up, tapped me on the shoulder, and presented me with a drawing. But how could... George frowned at the automaton. Impossible. You must have done something to it. Did you alter the parameters of its mental capacity? No, not that I'm even sure whether I could do that. Then either you're not telling the whole truth, or you're doing this yourself to try and fool me. George puts the drawing at Douglas, whose hand mechanically reached for it while his mind was elsewhere. He laid the crumpled drawing slide and stuck his folder to his pockets. He held himself uneasily, thinning his lips and looking down at his feet. At length he took a long intake of breath, and exhaled sharply from his nose as he worked himself up to speak. George, I don't think we should hand it over to the girl. What do you mean? How could we possibly not do so? I mean that, well, I don't think you've realised exactly what you've created. He's more than just a mechanical composer. I truly think this android is unlike any of the other models we've constructed in the past. I believe that it actually has consciousness. Consciousness. Are you serious? Deadly. Why, just because you claim it drew a belt? No, not just because of that. It's another things too. That it could operate beyond the, the parameters I determined in its design is inconceivable. Can it not learn? Not to such a great extent as that. This is all a mere fancy of yours. You are seeing what you wish to rather than what is really there. What do you not see? When you look into its eyes, do you really want to see it? See what? George looked the automaton hard in the face as Douglas continued speaking. When you look into the eyes of an automaton, even an advanced one, it does not look back at you. Even a bird doesn't look at you in the same way an intelligent creature would. But he is different. When you look into his eyes, you really feel there's something there behind them. George, it's alive. Not just alive, but a fully self-aware, sentient being. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details.